God gave us an antidote for sugar. It's called fiber. And everywhere in nature where there's sugar, there's fiber. So really look at the ratio of sugar to fiber and make sure that ratio is no more than three to one to choose your dietary source. So if I had to choose a perfect diet, it would be one third of a protein source and two thirds of things on your plate that have a lot of fiber. Insulin resistance is a topic I have been very interested in recently. Those of you who regularly listen to the podcast have probably heard me talking about how InsaTracker has recently added fasting insulin to our blood panel. The more conversation I have with experts, the more clear is that insulin is one of the most important biomarkers to determine the stature of our metabolic health and prevent chronic diseases later in life. I have interviewed a few different scientists to discuss how insulin resistance impacts health. Each one has a unique perspective and clinical experience with this condition. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Mitch Roslin, the chief of bariatric surgery at Lenox Hill Hospital. Mitch is very knowledgeable about obesity, glucose regulation, insulin resistance, and how we can use lifestyle choices to promote longevity. Mitch and I discussed a range of topics related to insulin resistance, including risk factor, early warning signs, and what dietary pattern best promote metabolic health. We talk about keto diet, time restriction eating, physiological condition regarding weight gain, and more. Mitch also gave his opinion on a perfect diet and even discussed diet versus exercise for weight loss, both of which I thought very interesting. I really enjoyed the discussion as Mitch tells fascinating stories about his experience as a clinician. I got educated about insulin resistance, and I know the listener will learn a lot too. Enjoy the discussion, and don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life? I will start with the question, Mitch, and the first question is, what, what is the role of insulin in the body? So that is actually a really, really good question because most of our listeners, when they hear of insulin, they think of diabetes and glucose control. The truth of the matter is insulin is our everyday or our rapid energy hormone. And as of its role to regulate glucose, perhaps its greatest role, or at least equivalent role, is to regulate the amount of fat that we have. So that insulin, when insulin goes levels are high, especially at baseline, it tells the body to um, basically store fat and prevent the breakdown of fat. So it's interesting that I'm doing this interview in Canada 
um, because that's where Banting is from, and he actually discovered insulin. And it was a, a really sentinel discovery because it saved a lot of people's lives who had type 1 diabetes. And because of its importance in that role, we tend to think of insulin as a glucose-regulating hormone, but it's really an energy-regulating hormone, and its ability to regulate fat storage is as sentinel as its ability to control blood glucose level. Excellent. Thank you for uh, the interesting answer. And my next question is, uh, what does it mean to be an insulin-resistant? Well, so insulin resistance means that the first thing that your body will do to regulate the level of glucose is to increase its production of insulin to keep the sugar normal. And when it does so, the glucose is normal. And I think that sends a important message that may be an error to many people and to many doctors. So if I take somebody who's in the bottom quartile or about the 25th percentile of insulin resistance, okay, in other words, they're pretty insulin resistant. And I take somebody who's much more insulin sensitive, say 75th percentile, and I give them a milkshake, their glucose curve will look very, very similar. But the way the person who's insulin resistant controls that glucose is by making more insulin, having more production. And as I mentioned, insulin is a growth or an anabolic hormone and promotes fat storage. So while the glucose may be regulated, the consequences of having high insulin include a lot of fat storage, especially in places where fat doesn't belong such as the liver, pancreas, and brain. Excellent. And what causes insulin, insulin resistance? Why uh, some people become insulin resistant? Well, that's a, a more diverse answer. So let's start with the fact is, as we age, we become more insulin resistant. Obviously, there's a genetic tendency to become insulin re resistant. And then, obviously, the more insulin that we need to produce throughout our life based on diet, weight, and other things promotes insulin resistance. Another thing that really, really helps and prevents insulin resistance is muscular exercise. So really what we talk about that I think is really important in, in health is what fuels your muscles use. And healthy people, when they're walking around and doing kind of low-grade, non-intense exercise, they should be burning predominantly fat. When people become insulin-resistant, they burn predominantly carbohydrate, even at very, very low levels of, you know, of very low levels of exercise. And you can promote the use of or intake of glucose into cells two ways. One is the insulin-dependent pathway, and one is an insulin-dependent pathway. And the in insulin-independent pathway is promoted by exercise at the level of the muscle. So you're making your pancreas work less 
the more exercise that you do. Excellent. And uh, Mitch, let's assume that someone is insulin uh, resistant and uh, is worried about the long-term effect of that. Can you discuss a bit what happened uh, when you become insulin resistant? What are the health effects of that? Well, I think that, you know, for example, um, I see that many, many people who are obese are insulin resistant. I also think that many for example, younger people who have PCOS are insulin resistant. And I think that there is a kind of thought process that when most practitioners look at hemoglobin A1C, that that's a reflection of insulin resistance. And I think that that biomarker changes at a later stage than, than fasting insulin. And I think that it's really, really a very, very important marker to know your fasting insulin early because I think that we've gotten obsessed with the consequences of hyperglycemia or diabetes, which we know is bad, but the hyperinsulinemia has significant consequences for the body, including poor fertility, fatty liver disease, possibly very much related to dementia, uh, probably very, very much related to cancer growth because insulin is our anabolic hormone. It promotes growth and fat storage. So everything that's related to high metabolism is probably related to an increase in insulin level. Yeah, and uh, Mitch, we, we met a few weeks ago and uh, we discussed uh, some uh, data that you have seen with some of your uh, patient, uh, bariatric uh, surgery patient, uh, that you see that uh, when they are younger but still obese patient, you can see that uh, the first sign is actually uh, very high insulin, but still the A1C and glucose is, uh, is still uh, look normal. Can sometimes, you sometimes, sometimes even low. Sometimes even low, which is, is, is very surprising. Yeah. Um, I would say that my specialty, as you just mentioned, is bariatric surgery. And um, a lot of, uh, based on a lot of the work in the conversations that I've done with people like yourself, has made me realize that when we see people who are obese, it's really a marker of accelerated aging. And when we begin to hone in, and there's not one pattern that's completely universal, but I would say that 80% of the people that we see, especially at young age, will have a high insulin level with a relatively normal glucose level. And what we see in, in, in even about 10% of these patients, even at baseline, is an elevated lactic acid level which is really, really surprising because essentially you produce lactic acid when you're burning carbohydrate. So it means even at rest, these patients are burning enough carbohydrate to see levels that are elevated even at baseline. And that's usually a test used by surgeons when somebody comes in septic or very ill that they've stopped producing what they have, what's called a metabolic acidosis. 
So our patients are running close to acidotic sometimes, even at baseline, which is, you know, very, very surprising and tells you that they have a very high respiratory quotient. And essentially, it's a fascinating finding because it means that even though the definition of obesity is to have excess fat tissue, these patients lose the ability to metabolize fat. So I like to say that they're kind of like Bernie Madoff wealthy. They think they have all these assets, but they, they can't get to them. They can't use their energy reserve. The IRS uh, sees it and they cannot use it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, but, but uh, sorry about the joke, but uh, to, to keep it uh, serious, so, so I'm trying to translate your, uh, what you said to my language and let's see if I, I got it right. So what you are saying in a way, a uh, higher insulin or a uh, too high insulin is an early sign of uh, metabolic diseases. And it's not only diabetes, as you said before, it's also an issue with uh, fat metabolism that you cannot metabolize and use the fat. So you store it, but it's uh, basically not useful. And uh, if you really want to know if you have a risk of uh, having metabolic diseases, insulin is a, a key marker to measure and to follow up. Is that correct? Absolutely. Our earliest market. Now, One of the things that we have to guard about is that fat is not bad. Fat allows, you know, I kind of think that both of our ancestors probably came from Eastern Europe. Well, I, I, I always have a slide that there are no chimpanzees that live in Eastern Europe. So it allows us to live in fat weather. It allows us to have a reserve. And evolutionarily, the idea of storing fat allowed us to build up fat, you know, before the flood, flood season came, you know, in the Levant and areas like that. And we would then burn the fat as our caloric intake came down over the winter months. That also gives us the ability to survive certain diseases. So the idea of having 0% body fat, which may be great for body building competitions, is certainly not productive for women who want to have a baby, menstruate normally, and even for males. And there's such things called an obesity paradox. And you know in longevity that there's controversy that potentially people who have BMIs in the 25 to 30 range may have an advantage. But at the extremes, when you start getting into fatty liver and high adipose tissue, what happens is you have high insulin levels. And really probably the hallmark of all the chronic diseases that we are concerned with as we get older, for example, heart disease, which people do equate with diabetes, but what many of our listeners don't understand is that metabolic dysfunction probably is a higher risk factor for cancer and dementia than it is even for heart disease. And that probably has a lot to do with high insulin levels, promoting the storage of fat and tissues and an inflammatory response in areas where we don't want it. So in evolutionary times, we would use high insulin levels to store fat. That would be followed by a relative fast or a decline in calories with a regulation. 
now we chronically have high insulin levels, which leads to a lot of metabolic dysfunction. Yeah. And uh, Mitch, most of our uh, listeners are not uh, obese, but uh, I think that what's interesting about it, that you don't have to be obese to have an issue with fat, uh, specifically visceral fat, which is, uh, let's say, not uh, most wanted. So can you explain why the location that you deposit uh, the fat are uh, important and some places are better and some places are worse and you need to know where uh, the deposit is? Well, that's kind of an interesting topic and why that occurs. You know, we, we tend to talk about male pattern or female pattern obesity. And there's no question about the fact that the hyperinsulinemia and the high insulin level promotes storage of fat in the viscera, in the liver, and is associated with fat, fatty liver disease. It's interesting when I see people who are obese who do not have metabolic dysfunction, they tend to have most of their fat in their hips and their buttocks, and they have very, very high estrogen levels, and some, a lot of times estradione. And if they're male, what happens is they have very, very low testosterone levels that they have a lot of what's called, uh, uh, what's called uh, an enzyme called aromidase that converts all of that testosterone to estrogen. So it's very interesting, and I don't think anybody really has a firm understanding, but we see different body apodices. We see people who have central obesity that tend to have high insulin levels that have a very high risk of metabolic dysfunction, and then we see people who have hip and buttock distributions that have very high levels of estradione that oftentimes will have normal or, or moderately raised insulin, insulin levels, but very, very high estrogen levels uh, and high sex hormone levels. Now, that may be a fertility advantage for females. When males get it and they develop the gynecomastia, in fact, the largest males that I see BMIs of 80 usually are very metabolically healthy on the inside. Now, when I see those patients, yes, they're very unlikely to have heart disease. However, what happens often is the tires go and the risk of disability becomes really, really high, about 55 to 65. Very interesting. And now we are what, when we understand what are the risks of uh, insulin resistance, which is not only diabetes, the question is, how can uh, one of our listeners prevent insulin resistance via lifestyle intervention? Exercise and diet. Uh, I mean, it, 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 may sound, it may sound minute, but the ability to exercise on a daily basis you know, walk, be active, uh, promotes the, the, the driving, reduces the amount of insulin. The best way to answer that question is that there is a team of cyclists that are type 1 diabetics. And when you look at type 1 diabetics, the ones who are extremely active and exercise to a high level require very, 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 very little exogenous insulin. So, the amount of exogenous insulin that type 1 diabetics who don't make insulin make 
show you the ways that you can reduce your insulin resistance. And what they share in common is a diet that's low in processed carbohydrates and certain fruits, for example, figs, dried fruits, and things like that. You know, berries are probably better. Um, they avoid things like juice. They avoid things like soda. They especially avoid things like crackers and starch. So as a general rule, eat a protein source and two-thirds of uh, your diet should have things that have high fiber. If there's one rule that I can talk about as, you know, a pseudo, you know, dietary principle, the more fiber that goes into your food, the better you you are. God gave us an antidote for sugar. It's called fiber. And everywhere in nature where there's sugar, there's fiber. So really look at, and, you know, part of uh, you know, others in the inside tracker team can explain this better than I can, but the ratio of sugar to fiber and make sure that ratio is no more than three to one to choose your dietary source. So if I had to choose a perfect diet, it would be one-third of a protein source and two-thirds of things on your plate that have a lot of fiber, um, you know, like salads, vegetables, legumes, yeah. uh, things, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with you that uh, fiber is a very good uh, tool in our toolbox to regulate uh, the level of uh, uh, glucose and insulin and uh, allow us... Uh, to live hopefully better and longer. And uh, it was an interesting point about the type 1 diabetic that uh, basically riding uh, uh, professional uh, bikers. And uh, it, it's well known for us, at least as a scientist, that uh, when uh, you exercise, the, your muscle cells can absorb uh, glucose even uh, without a lot of insulin. As you said, they're type 1 diabetic, meaning they yeah, don't they, they, any insulin, but they still can absorb the glucose because the, the muscle is very active, which is... Uh, yeah, and they require, some, some require, you know, they're, uh, you know I, the New York Rangers have a very prominent player who's a type 1 diabetic, and they manage him by, you know, it requires very little insulin, and they do give him some carbo-loading right before hockey games, but other than that, they stick he sticks on a very diet that's very, very high in fiber and requires very little exogenous insulin at all. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I think that uh, for, let's say, the, the average person that is not a Tour de France rider or not, a, let's say, the New York Ranger uh, a player, when you eat a big meal, walking after the meal can help you a lot to uh, walking or running or doing exercise can help you to flatten the curve of uh, the insulin and the glucose and hopefully allow your beta cells that produce the insulin to respond better and longer. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's really funny. Okay. And, and looking at, looking, looking at this number one, for people who want to lose weight, they have to change their diet. It's nearly impossible to exercise your way to weight loss because intake and outtake are linked in, the, the, the way the body works, and we can discuss that. Um, a, a great book was written by a anthropologist from Duke called Burned, B-U-R-N-E-D, about the metabolism of hunters and gatherers and actually people from Boston, which is very relevant because you're sitting in Boston. Um, but 
exercise is so important for insulin regulation. It also is probably its greatest role is that it kind of, if you stress your body, it kind of relaxes your body at different times. Almost you can begin to think that we have a certain amount of metabolic turnover or a certain amount of heart heartbeats in a body. And when you're hyperinsulinemic, the furnace is all, always on. That's your short-term energy-regulating hormone. Leptin is probably your long-term energy-regulating hormone. So when your insulin level is high, what I like to tell people is I basically see the same patient at the end you know, as a bariatric surgeon that gets a lot of referrals that works in a tertiary center. When I see it from the cardiologist, it's because the heart burned out first. When I see it from the endocrinologist, it's because the pancreas is burning out. When I see it from the gastroenterologist, it's because the liver is burning out because of NASH. But the overall overriding thing is that the furnace is on the metabolism, the metabolic turnover is too high. The sympathetic tone is too high and the heart's beating faster and the body's working harder when we're resting. And that's what exercise and to some extent diet does is it kind of puts you into, it, it, it's, it's kind of like metabolic sleep. It's just like the importance of sleep to your brain to revitalize a low, insulin level is so important for the rest of your body to be relaxed when it's not being stressed. Yeah, sounds uh, very interesting. And if we are uh, continuing to discuss uh, diets, so there are a few diets that uh, or few dietary behavior, let's say, that uh, some people use and they are uh, really in the news right now, for example, a ketogenic diet. So what do you think about ketogenic diet and the effect on uh, insulin resistance and uh, diabetes? I, I think the ketogenic diet is a outstanding diet short term, especially for people who have it's important as to what we truly mean by a ketogenic diet. Um, and I, I'm reluctant to diets that don't add a lot of high fiber foods to them because I think fiber is so important for the intestine long-term. So the original ketogenic diets that really, you know, that what what people perceive of an Atkins diet, for example, having a lot of bacon and eggs and avoiding all vegetables is something that I would tell them to refrain from because in the long run, I don't think that's a diet that leads to great gut health. It probably would be very effective for insulin levels. So I think a modified ketogenic diet that adds foods with fiber is a very, very effective way to keep your insulin levels relatively low. Um, again, you go down into different ways. I mean, you know, if there, there are only minimal amount of, of, of dietary restrictions that you can have. You can restrict your calories by trying to count calories the Weight Watchers way, which I think is rather difficult. You can reduce your food groups, which is what you're talking about, which I think works really well within reason. But again, fiber to me means means everything. And then when you can talk about time-restricted eating is another 
mechanism of controlling your diet, which I know has been effective for a lot of different people. But even within that, I think having the proper amount of fiber in your diet and protein is really, really important. As a Longevity by Design podcast listener, you understand the value of improving your health for today and for all the years ahead. And if you want to live your healthiest, longest life possible, you need to understand what's going on inside. At Inside Tracker, we take a personalized approach to health span optimization that eliminates guesswork from your wellness plan. Inside Tracker analyzes blood biomarker and DNA data, along with physiomarker data from fitness trackers like Aura Ring, to deliver personalized food, supplement, lifestyle, and exercise recommendations that allow you to take control and improve your health span. And for a limited time, Longevity by Design listeners can get 20% off at the Inside Tracker store. So if you're ready to receive a personal health analysis and data-driven wellness plan to optimize your body for the long haul, then it's time to start inside. Visit insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. That's insidetracker.com slash podcast to get started today. So let's talk here for a second about the intermittent fasting or time-restricted diet, as you said. What is the effect that a, a person should expect and specifically someone that is uh, really overweight or even obese, like your patient or someone more that have, a, let's say, a normal BMI, but is trying to lose a one or two pounds or five pounds? What is the, the expected effect for each of them? Well, so the time-restricted eating and its role. So, so the theory about time-restricted eating is if you restrict your eating to within, say, six hours, and now you get into all the controversy about Katadian cycles and whether it has to be in the morning, that if you fast for a while, your insulin levels go down. That's probably somewhat true, but probably the greatest effect of time-restricted eating is if you really narrow the window that you eat, you're probably eating less calories. And clinically, what I have seen is that ex-athletes, people who are extremely disciplined, and people who don't have a tremendous weight problem tend to benefit the most from time-restricted eating. What frequently happens to people who are seriously obese that try time-restricted eating is that they get so overwhelmed that they wind up actually eating as many, if not more, calories in during that period of time. Because energy regulation is, is centrally driven. And once you really have obesity, you tend to have poor energy regulation. And that's why we're seeing why bariatric surgery works and why the medications work. So breaking the cycle of obesity, especially severe obesity without a tool, is probably ignorant. And now we're seeing that more and more with the GLP analogs. So once people have a broken energy regulation system, we probably have to understand that in all likelihood, education's not going to work. We've seen that over a long period of time, which really means that prevention is so important. If not, we're talking about things like sur sur surgery or being on GLP analogs, not for a short period of time, but probably for the rest of your life. Yeah. 
And uh, one uh, comment about the time-restricted diet, and I really like what you said. Uh, you cannot expect to eat six hours and then eat uh, have a feast during that six hours and expect that you will lose weight. Yeah. I, can, I, I can give an anecdote. A, a relative of mine called me a few weeks ago and said, hey, I'm doing a time-restriction diet. I'm doing it for the last couple of months, and I haven't lost any, any pound. And I, I, I told her, listen, you cannot eat like a pig during that six hours. You should eat the same amount what you used to eat before, but only in that six hours, meaning that you should eat less, and then that's that will allow you to lose the weight. So I think that uh, uh, our audience should uh, set their expectation. It's working only if you don't uh, overload the calories during that uh, six or eight hours. So now let's bring this all back together, okay? What we talked about. So we began by talking about how insulin level re regulates fat storage. And then I mentioned how many of our fat people, heavy people, or people who struggle with obesity okay, lose the ability to metabolize fat. Well, think about that. That means that their muscles require glycogen to work. So that means when they get to that point, and this is where they, they, they struggle, they have to go to the bank to get more money or more calories to stay active. Yeah. Now, we know that strong caloric deprivation can convert these people from the inability to metabolize fat to allowing them to metabolize fat. But again, the energy regulation center in the brain is broken. So it's really important, you know, and this is what I've realized through years of treating bariatric surgery. When your listeners hear about bariatric surgery, um, and I think what makes this easier to understand is the effectiveness of the new drugs that we have. It sounds like, you know, forced behavioral scarian theory. We're going to make the stomach small so it's not pleasant for them to eat. But it, exactly the opposite happens. What's going on is energy regulation is autonomic. It's in the back of the brain. It's in the lower brain function. And conscious thought and people listening to what we're saying and intelligence comes from the frontal cortex. So people with obesity, they actually, the hind brain is telling them to eat. The frontal brain is telling them when they wake up in the morning, you know, this is not good for my health. I'm trying to lose weight and there's a conflict. When we actually give people proper medication or surgery who have a significant weight problem, we get the GI tract in the brain to match. And that's why they're, they're very, very happy. So the problem with your friend is not that he's doing this on purpose, but it's being driven by an energy dysregulation function. And that's very, very hard to break. Now, some people can break it on their own and they have the ability to go hungry. Many people, when they're hungry, are driven, so have such a strong drive to eat that they can't break that. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, that's where, you know, the next generation comes into effect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I think that uh, some people, let's say people that are a bit heavier, I feel like that there are some people that don't need to diet. And I don't think that it's true as much as I know. Again, I don't know everyone, but everyone is dieting. Everyone make hundreds of uh, decisions about nutrition and food in a day. 
Some people are making a better decision or some people are lucky and they like, uh, they're attracted more to a food that are healthier than other. But all of us are dieting and all of us are struggling. Even the uh, marathon runners, a lot of runners, by the way, that I, I spoke with and they are InstaTracker users, are going for a run just because they want uh, uh, to eat the hamburger later. So for them, I, I will go to for a run, I burn 500 calories, and now I deserve to eat the hamburger. So, so I think that everyone is uh, dieting and but everyone they, is trying to manage their uh, weight. Yeah. And, well, that's one of the things that people who have a weight problem think that they have a monopoly. But everybody should be concerned with what, what, they're, what they're eating. Yeah. Um, and what I will say is exercise is not a way to lose weight. It is a way to prevent weight regain. And it probably has a greater impact on longevity than it does on weight. Because input, when, the more you exercise, the hungrier you're going to be in the more intake you're going to take. And again, as I go back, I think that Herbert Panzer has studied this better than anybody else. He actually, in his book, he talks about the caloric burn of people that have ran across the country. And what's interesting is I always, when I give talks about obesity, I always start with, you know, a bunch of true and false questions. Number one, and the importance of metabolism. I explain that what lives longer, a chihuahua or protein, most people get that. What's really interesting is who burns more calories, somebody who's a couch potato in Boston or a hunter and gatherer in Africa. And the answer is they actually burn the same amount of calories. They just do it doing different things. So the hunter and gatherer is burning calories walking through the savanna or walking wherever they're going looking for food. The person lying on a couch in Boston is burning their calories because their heart's beating faster. They're at a more, you know, higher respiratory amount. But the amount of energy that we use is fairly consistent. You know, another classic question is, if you run a mile in eight minutes and I run a mile in 10 minutes, who burns more calories? And the answer is the same. You just burn it quicker, <laughs> you know, if you're running it faster. Yeah. So the point is, if you want to lose weight, we have to figure out a way for you to have a caloric addiction and maintain, you know, a, a happy lifestyle, whether that's a tool. And exercise is really, really, really important for longevity and weight maintenance, but it's hard to exercise your way to weight loss if you have a weight problem by itself. Yeah. So Mitch, a follow-up question about that, and I'm trying to connect the insulin resistance to that. So do you see a difference between someone that uh, is insulin resistant versus someone that is not related to weight watch, a uh, weight loss? Sorry. So is it easier for someone so, that is not insulin resistant to lose weight? When, when people are in, you know, again, I don't think we have a firm understanding on the 20% of people who are severely obese that are not insulin resistant. And um, whether they lose weight, they may have a more congenital type thing or a different type of mechanism. Um, but there's no question that once people become insulin resistant, that's really you know the patient that gives you the history, I'm going to the gym every day, I've changed my eating habits. 
And breaking that insulin resistance really requires significant caloric deprivation. And that's where I think surgery comes in in the fact that it allows you to maintain caloric deprivation for a long period of time and the medications that we're talking about. It's interesting, most of the medications have been investigated on people that have not the severest obesity. So in other words, that's their obese, but they're more likely to be class one and class two than the patients that I see that are class three. And there's no question that every treatment works better the lower the class that you're in. So you can't extrapolate from the person who's 30 or 40 pounds overweight compared to the person who's 130 pounds overweight. My guess is that the inside tracker population will do extremely well on, on, on the medications. They tend to be closer to, to, to the norm than, than, than what I see clinically. Absolutely. And uh, if we, uh, uh, we will try for a second to discuss exercise. So do you see a different effect of endurance versus strength or resistant exercise on uh, insulin resistance? Well, I think that's probably, you know, I think that probably when it comes to insulin resistance, the most important type of exercise is going to be uh, long-term cardiovascular. Now, Longevity, different combination because falls is so important. And especially if you're losing weight, there's no way to lose weight without losing muscle. So everybody who loses 20% of their body weight is also losing 10 to 15% of their muscle mass. You hope that those things. So you want to offset that by doing some degree of resistance training. But the way to promote fat utilization is long-term endurance training. Basically at, you know, people would talk about 80% of their maximum heart rate or pretty much what we want our patients doing is exercising to a point where they can still talk to you, but they're straining because that's going to be the most likely part that they're burning fat. Now, when you get to people who are truly insulin resistant, I think that's what the deficit is they lose the ability to metabolize fat at the level of the mitochondria. And I think that the first thing that happens, and this is where the, there's a controversy. So now I'm going to backtrack a little bit and go take us in a different line. So if you listen to people like Gary Taubes and Robert Lustig, they believe what happens is it's the food that we eat for example, a cracker. A cracker, if you put it in your mouth long enough, will turn into glucose. That glucose stimulates insulin, a high insulin level. That high insulin level you know, will, will drive, f- drive you to store fat. And they believe this happens peripherally. Then there are people like Ken Hall that believe it's just total caloric intake that the higher amount of calories and it's an energy regulation issue. I think that if you look at the scientific data, while obviously there's a lot of truth in what people like Gary Taub say, it's probably caloric overdrive comes first and that the insulin resistance happens because they're 
at the level of the cell, the cell has too many nutrients. So it's like everybody converging around Manhattan during rush hour and there's traffic and the cars are fighting to get to the mitochondria. So there's too many nutrients in the cell and the fat and the carbohydrate are fighting to get to the energy regulation and there's too many nutrients in the cell. So it sends a message to the cell to not to have not to allow insulin, which its primary focus is to drive things into the cell, caloric intake into the cell, to become resistant. So I think the first thing that happens is there's traffic from excess nutrients, and that insulin resistance is then a response because of the excess calories. But that's controversial. You have people like Gary Taubes that believe it starts with the foods that we're eating, and other people that believe it's because of caloric intake, like Kent Hall. The studies that we've done show that the caloric increase, which is oftentimes from carbohydrates, and here's where they're right. If you eat foods like glucose, if you eat foods like crackers all the time, what happens is you're constantly hungry because you get that hyperinsulinemia, you get that rapid decline in glucose, and that drives you to eat. So it may be that the two theories are exactly the same. Okay, good. And uh, Mitch, I'm, I'm trying to, to see if there are uh, a ways to predict or to see whether you are uh, insulin uh, uh, resistant without measuring insulin. So can someone see some other sign that might reflect that he has uh, insulin resistant or you have to test uh, fasting insulin to see it? I think fasting insulin would be the best, but I would tend to think that people that have triglycerides tend to also be insulin resistant. And I think that, well, obviously hemoglobin A1C, once that rises. But what we're trying to do is the earliest signs. And what I will tell you is that hemoglobin A1C is a late sign. That means that the pancreas is beginning to not be able to meet its demand yeah. by the time it comes up. And what I think we're targeting when we only look at hemoglobin A1C is we're basically saying that the pancreas is going to be the first organ that goes. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that the patients that I see that have the worst fatty liver, and I'm one of the few people in this field that actually sees livers. You know, everybody else doesn't. Most people don't operate. Yeah. And I could tell you, and I, I recently sent you pictures from the operating room of patients that have had hemoglobin A1Cs. And instead of their liver being a purplish hue, is completely orange. It's completely replaced. 90% of their liver looks like duck pate. Okay. And that comes from overfeeding and they're not necessarily diabetic. Yeah. So I think those patients often have very high triglycerides. So if you see high triglycerides in somebody that doesn't drink, that tells you that they've had, they've exceeded the ability of the liver to store the fat. So the triglycerides are actually carriers of that fat to other organs in the body. So, you know, one of the things is when we have these conversations, cholesterol's not bad. It's part of our cell walls. It's a very, very important thing. Fat gives us an important reserve. What we're talking about is excess of these things. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. 
And uh, Mitch, going back to uh, the question that I asked you about design, so I, I assume that there are a lot of uh, people in the audience that might start having insulin resistance, but because, and they don't know it because they are not measuring insulin, they are not measuring uh, uh, triglycerides, they are not looking at the biopsy of their liver, obviously. So w- what is your uh, assumption? If you uh, think about uh, people that know that they have a high risk for insulin resistance or people that have high risk but they don't know, what is the ratio between them, in your opinion? Well, you know, there are people that say that 80% of our country is metabolically unhealthy. So that's what they're basically saying. The earliest sign is going to probably be, if you really want to look at it from that standpoint. So what would I Okay. I think that the earliest sign of insulin resistance, which I think we kind of sometimes see with in, in female people who are not um, obese, I think sometimes the earliest sign that we see is when they struggle with fertility. And I think that the earliest test that you're going to see in abnormality is going to be a glucose tolerance test where the glucose is going to be normal. The glucose tolerance test basically means we, we give somebody the equivalent of orange juice, but a high sugary beverage. And then at 30-minute intervals, the blood is analyzed for your glucose and insulin. Okay, Every single pregnant woman has had one. But most doctors are just looking at the glucose. If you look at the insulin level next to it, what you will see in a lot of people that have struggled with fertility or ECOS is the glucose stays normal, but the way you get there is with high insulin levels. So the earliest thing that I'd see if anybody's struggling. Again, I am really big about function. So one of the things about all of these conversations is that what do we mean when we measure health? So I know what my patients know when they say they're healthy. They say they're healthy because they went to their doctor and their doctor didn't put them on medications. And they say, well, I can do everything that I want to do. But oftentimes we're now measuring how vociferous people's complaints are. So if you take somebody who was like, you know, an extreme athlete, they may be complaining that this is sore, that's sore, and their function's really, really good. And then you look at somebody else who basically doesn't do as much, so they're really never stressing their body. So I think what you really want to look at when you measure health is function. And the best measure of health that we have is VO2 max, but obviously that's a very hard thing to measure. But we should be able to, for example, you know, be able to run a 10 to 12-minute mile especially if we're less than 50 years old. We should be able to do 20 push-ups. You know, we should be able to do different things of function. And I think, you know, for example, longevity, people talk about six-minute walk. So how far you can walk in six minutes at a brisk pace determines who's going to live and who's not. And those things tend to be measuring your metabolic health, your cardiac health, and your respiratory health. So, you know, I think that we need to be as physicians measuring function more. And then when function's not adequate, really dive into 
all of these things as to what's going on. Yeah, that was a, a excellent a, a summary and a conclusion, Mitch. Our, uh, yeah, it's it's very important to measure insulin. It's uh, as as you said, it's one of the early warning sign of uh, metabolic issues and uh, glucose metabolism and uh, fatty liver and uh, a way uh, that uh, inability to use your fat storage and uh, and so on. It is also very important to uh, look at a, a functional test, like as you said. Uh, a VO2 max or, or other and uh, be sure that you can do that. And then insulin can be one of the most important markers to tell you whether you have an early issues. An example that you provided a, a, a few seconds ago is a PCOS and other fertility issues. So it sounds like, uh, uh, from what I heard from you, insulin is a very important uh, marker that maybe is uh, underappreciated by the medical uh, community, and maybe we should uh, use it more in order to identify the issue early and uh, treat them and, may, and uh, actually maybe prevent diabetes and the other metabolic uh, diseases. I think absolutely that's true. I think that what we're going to be looking at in the future is much like you know, cholesterol has morphed into ApoB and ApoA, as your early markers, I think that metabolic dysfunction precedes all of that earlier on in, you know, essentially if you, 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 you look, you know, metabolic dysfunction is going to be the hallmark of all of your cancers, dementias, and all of your chronic diseases. And the longer we put that off, the better off we're going to be. And probably the earliest thing that we're going to see is going to be an elevated insulin with a glucose tolerance test. Most of us don't want to sit for a glucose tolerance test, so fasting insulin would probably be the best early biomarker. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great uh, uh, analogy. I really like it, Mitch. So basically insulin is like the ApoB or the early sign of uh, metabolic dysfunction, like ApoB for uh, cardiovascular health. So I think that it's a, a great summary for a great discussion. Thank you so much, Mitch, and thank you so much for uh, agreeing to uh, join us again. And uh, I know that you are busy and you are now in Canada and uh, have a lot of other obligations. So we really appreciate that. And uh, I'm sure that we will uh, host you again soon. It's always a pleasure, Gil, and look forward to working with you and the team at Inside Tracker. Uh, as we really, you know, we, we have a lot of exciting plans and, and that I think that uh, we'll, we can add a lot of science to this. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker, a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized, science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit InsideTracker.com slash podcast. 